of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Auzubillahi minashaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the Almighty, the Most Gracious, the Most Merciful, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon everyone, and welcome to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam Studios. Uh, today is Monday, the 27th of November. And we are starting our show, which is uh, usually from 7 to 9 a.m. Uh, and uh, as usual, we have two segments, two different topics we discuss. <coughs> and today, we have uh, two very interesting topics and also a, uh, a, a, a number of guests who can uh, and experts who can uh, give us a very deep intake on this. The first segment we will be talking about, which we will start shortly, is a hopeful decline in dementia. And we will be discussing the effects and the causes of dementia and also the new treatment that which has been discovered. Uh, the second segment is about leadership and resilience and how to bounce back and lead forward, especially in these uh, uh, difficult times nowadays in, with the wars happening, with the um, COVID also um, happening a couple of years ago. Uh, so the world looks like it's going downwards. However, we have to push people up and we will be discussing that with also a number of guests. Today, uh, I'm joined with uh, Nabil Bhatti with me. Uh alaikum, Nabil. How are you? Assalamualaikum. I'm very well. How are you? I'm good as well. Thank you. How was, how was your weekend? Yeah, weekend was good, um, by the grace of Allah. Um, very short, but it was, um, it was packed and food. Um, so yeah, spent time with some family. Had to go work, obviously, but other than that, it was a very eventful um, week. Yeah, same here as well. I think yesterday, especially Sunday, was uh, very busy. Usually Sundays, uh, my Sundays are not that busy, but yesterday we had a lot of meetings. There was a there was also a tabligh event and outreach event from them, the community, um, a regional event to you know go out and preach to the people. Uh, and it was freezing. It yeah, was, uh, a sudden was, drop in temperature, isn't it? It was so mm. cold yesterday. Yeah. 
even my throat is a little bit <laughs> you know <laughs> um, but anyways in terms of the weather uh, today is looking a little bit better but uh, later on in the week it will get really cold um, so everyone be, prepare, uh, be prepared uh, especially I think on Friday that the temperature is uh, expected to drop below minus uh, below zero um, so yeah this is one one uh, one of the news you should look be uh, should be looking out for at the moment uh, apart from this we'll just quickly go through the newspaper headlines and then we'll start our segment today a bit early because we have a lot of guests and we have a lot to talk about um, so the newspaper headlines uh, are something like this that most of Monday's front pages feature glowing tributes to former England manager Terry Venables who died at the age of 80 over the weekend images of the former Chelsea Spurs QPR and Crystal Palace football adorn the football the front the front of the metro as the paper's headline bids farewell Altel and looks back on his glittering career as a player and manager football's Football greats share their stories and memories of Venables, who led England to the 1996 European Championship semi-finals on home soil. Three Lions legends uh, Paul Gascoigne is mentioned on the front of the sun, uh, with the tabloid mentioning an image he posted on social media on Venables with a cup of tea alongside the message, Such a sad day. Cheers, boss. A huge image of Venables features on the front of the Daily Star. In the background image, Tottenham Hotspurs, who Venables used to manage, hold a minute's applause before the, their Premier League defeat to Aston Villa on Sunday. The Great Showman is the huge headline on the front of the Daily Mirror, which reflects on the career of former England, Barcelona, Australia, Tottenham and also Leeds United manager. According to the paper, Venables was not just a charismatic football player uh, and passionate England boss. He was also an author, singer, hotel and club owner, a man of many talents. The image of uh, the same person toasting up a cup of tea catches the eye on the front of Monday's Guardian. The broadsheet also looks at the latest on the situation in the Middle East. Elsewhere in domestic news, the paper has Figures which say NHS care delays in England harmed 8,000 people and caused 112 deaths last year. An NHS spokesperson said the health service works hard to keep patients safe and says when delays do happen, trusts are required to investigate them and take take further steps to further improve. Sports writer Martin Samuels describes Venables as innovative and brilliant as tribute continue in the times turning to domestic news actor eddie marson countdown presenter rachel riley and actress maureen lipman feature in a picture at sunday's march against anti-semitism in central london the paper describes it as one of the largest demonstrations of its kind for nearly a decade the Daily Telegraph's splash on Monday claims Rishi Sunak struck a deal on migrants with former Home Secretary Swella Braverman, uh, as the paper claims he needed her support during his leadership campaign last year. The paper claims it has seen a copy of a pact which says the Prime Minister agreed to raise the salary threshold for migrants to £40,000 from £26,000. The broadsheet adds Mr Sunak 
has not de- has not denied discussing policy options with Ms. Braverman over or the existence of a document, but Downing Street has rejected any characterization of its of of it as a deal. Elsewhere, a picture of Boris and Carrie Johnson attending the march against anti-Semitism with their son features on the paper's front page. According to the front page of Monday, Monday's I newspaper, current public finances will not allow Chancellor Jeremy Hunt to use the spring budget to cut a stealth tax, which the paper says is dragging millions into paying higher tax rates. Above the main story is a striking image of tens of thousands of people marching through La Central London in Sunday's demonstration against anti-Semitism, as the broadsheet reflects on a weekend of hostages being released and prisoners prisoners uh, exchanged in the Middle East. Journalists, author and documentary filmmaker Robert Hardman's thoughts on the march against anti-Semitism is the focus of Monday's Daily Mail. As the tabloid touches on the release of four-year-old Abigail Idan, who has dual Israeli and U.S. nationality and who was freed by Hamas on Sunday. The paper also takes aim at new claims made in a royal family biography due uh, due out later this week. Uh, The main story on the Daily Express looks ahead to the bombshell book by royal biographer Omid Scobie. Due out later this week as well, at the top of the masthead, the the paper warns an Arctic blast is on its way as Brits are urged to brace brace themselves for plummeting temperatures. And finally, Monday's Financial Times reflects on the four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The truce is due to end after Monday and Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Al Thani tells the paper the truce could be extended if Hamas is able to use the pause in the conflict to locate those hostages. So the news is slightly shifting away from uh, Israel Palestine, but it, it will it will still remain news uh, until this conflict is going on. Uh, so this was the newspaper headlines. So we'll take a short break and then we have to start our segment, uh, which is packed with a lot of guests, a lot of information. So stay tuned. If you have a uh, Anything to say, if you want to get in touch with us, please call us on 020-8687-7878 or drop us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. We will be back shortly. of Islam Radio. Welcome back 
to the voice of Islam. Um, as Osman was mentioning before, after giving out the news, we do have a packed schedule today with a lot of guests. Um, for the first segment, it's regarding a hopeful decline in dementia, just to give you an introduction of the story. Um, just of the story is that a recent study on dementia shows a decline in cases in the past 25 years. Many researchers of Alzheimer's disease have been surprised by this new finding as their hypothesis regarding the disease has been challenged. For example, age and dementia were linked. However, this is no longer the case as cardiovascular health may be a more crucial factor that causes dementia. This is a new research which may revolutionize the treatment of dementia as an improvement in cardiovascular health can significantly reduce the incidence of dementia. Studies show that the absolute risk is lower now than it was 30 years ago. There are early signs that such a trend is emerging in Japan where striking aged population showed, showing a downward trend becoming more widespread. The National Library of Medicine states the lead author, Kenneth Langer, an associate professor of internal medicine, called the findings good news for today's elderly people. We know that the mental stimulation has an impact on the way a person's brain is wired and that education early in life likely helps build up a person's cognitive reserve. We also know that cardiovascular health has a close link with brain health. The author's caution, however, that previous gains may be offset by the current epidemic of type 2 diabetes among early elderly people and by unhealthy eating and exercise habits among young and middle-aged people. Thank you, Nabil. So what is dementia and what are the leading causes of dementia? What does the decline in dementia patients mean for us and how can you prevent the onset of dementia? All these questions will be answered by our first guest, hopefully, uh, who is uh, Dr. Sadia Parveen. Uh, Dr. Sadia is an associate professor and healthy um, health psychologist at the University of Bradford and has over a decade worth of experience in dementia research and working with uh, diverse ethnic communities. Uh, Dr. Sadia has uh, led a number of research studies as well, focusing on improving the dementia care pathway for diverse communities. Uh, so let's welcome her on the show. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, Dr. Sadia. Assalamu uh, Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Thank you. We're good as well. Me and Nabil, by the grace of God. So as you, you've been listening, we are talking about dementia and um, uh, you, you have uh, quite a bit of experience in this field as well. So just to start off uh, to make everything clear for us and the listeners as well, uh, just tell us generally about dementia. Uh, I'm sure most people are aware, but... Um, What's what's your description or um, in, in a few sentences, what is dementia? Well, dementia is a neurological condition that's caused by diseases of the brain. And there are over 100 types of dementia that I know in um, South Asian communities, dementia is often confused for a mental health condition. But one of the things that I like to highlight to people in our community is that dementia is not just memory loss or um, emotional problems. It can affect all parts of your body your brain controls everything in your body so it will affect where, how well you can walk frailty muscles it affects everything mm -hmm. and how, does does the ethnicity have any impact on uh, the uh, level of dementia or the, the cause or uh, the chance of having dementia um 
there's very mixed evidence about ethnicity and dementia. So there's some studies that say that um, people from African Caribbean backgrounds and South Asian backgrounds are more likely to have dementia than white British people. And other mm-hmm. studies say that it's mainly African Caribbean who are more likely to have dementia than white British people. The, the research is very mixed at the moment. Interesting. And you mentioned it's not a um, it's not a mental health condition, right? No, no, it's a neurological condition. Okay. Um, so, so what's what's the process? What happens uh, during dementia? How how does the brain uh, stop functioning, or um, what happens in the brain? It really depends on what type of dementia you have. So, if you have Alzheimer's disease, one of the first symptoms you start noticing is. Um, memory loss or short-term memory loss you might remember what you did 10 years ago but you might have problems remembering what happened more recently mm-hmm. and can you uh, elaborate a little bit on your role in uh, in Tedum and collaboration with Alzheimer's Europe uh, specifically focusing on your f- focusing on your uh, efforts to enhance diagnosis rates and address challenges related to Alzheimer's disease Yes, I work with academics across Europe um, in an organisation called Interdem and we're very interested in addressing the health inequalities that minority ethnic ethnic communities experience across Europe. So the main thing that we want to address is the lack of diagnosis in minority communities. So having a timely diagnosis is very important for treatment. Unfortunately, minority ethnic communities either don't get a diagnosis or they get a diagnosis at a stage where it's really very difficult to support the person. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and uh, dementia? Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia, so it's the most common type of dementia. Mm-hmm. But uh, dementia is an umbrella term for lots of different types. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, um, what what uh, causes dementia? Is is this just age related, or are there other factors that people can avoid? Uh, in the... um, so there's lots of different risk factors. Age is a risk factor, but it's not something you can change. Everyone gets older. But mm-hmm. there are factors that you can change. And the most common risk factors in South Asian communities are very obvious. So diabetes, hypertension, um, lack of exercise, obesity, those types of risk factors um, are more likely to cause vascular dementia and vascular dementia is more common in South Asian communities. But the good news is it is preventable through lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also aware that you have some leadership in the ADAPT study, ADAPT, uh, which aimed to develop a culturally sensitive dementia care pathway for South Asian families. Uh, could you share some uh, key insights on uh, that study? Yes, so the ADAPT study wanted to reduce the health inequalities South Asian families experience in the UK. So they experience inequalities from prevention to diagnosis right down to end-of-life care. And in the ADAPT study, we wanted to develop a toolkit of resources to support healthcare professionals and service commissioners to provide culturally sensitive support to South Asian families across the dementia care pathway. Mm-hmm. And uh, you are involved in a lot of projects. So another one is the Dem Safe project, um, and how yes. it focuses on raising awareness of dementia risk. Um, so how is how's that project going? Yes, yeah, so the Dem Safe study um, 
goes back to what I was saying earlier. There's lots of risk factors within the South Asian and African Caribbean communities that are preventable. Um, so in this study, we're working with the African Caribbean community and the South Asian community, and we're getting the community itself to design a campaign to raise awareness of the risk factors and how we can reduce these risk factors in the communities. Mm-hmm. We've done several workshops now, and there's been lots of different ideas on what we can do. So the DEMSAFE study will develop um, a campaign and then we'll go further with testing, uh, well, implementing it and testing it out in the wider world, really. Mm-hmm. Okay, and lastly, if uh, somebody does have dementia, um, is there any help for him? What can he do to... Um, I don't think you can you can bring it back uh, and you can't recover from dementia, can you? No, you can't cure dementia, but you can live well with dementia with the right support. So I would suggest that person... Um, go see their GP and also access their local community services, whether that's the Alzheimer's Society or whether it's the local community centre because everyone will be able to give the right information and um, access to the right services so that person can live well with dementia. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Sadia Parveen. Uh, very insightful answers. Thank you for joining us this morning as well and I hope you have a wonderful day and week ahead of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, so that was uh, Dr. Sadia Parveen, who is an associate professor and health psychologist at the University of Bradford and has, uh, as you could probably tell, a, a decade worth of experience in dementia research and working with diverse eth- ethnic communities. Um, yeah, so uh, what's your thoughts, Nabil? Um, you was mentioning a lot about South Asian communities and uh, South uh, African Caribbean communities. Um, I mean, uh, we, we, us also being from a uh, South Asian community, and uh, I have actually dementia, uh, in and uh, I've experienced dementia in my family as well. My uh, my uncle had it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did you have any experience with dementia? I think I think um, I wouldn't. I don't know how 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 you would classify. It, it was probably short uh, memory loss among mm. the elderly in my family. Um, but I'm guessing that that's is due to age, maybe, because um, in their well, South Asian backgrounds, is most of them are farmers who grew up in ag- uh, agricultural lands, etc. So, in terms of healthy lifestyle, um, I would guess they were quite fit in a sense. Um, like mm. in the, re- the recent study that I mentioned in the start of the segment, where they're saying that if you had a healthy lifestyle and you know. Um, your cardiovascular health was healthy um, that could be leading towards a decline in dementia but I'm guessing there must be some certain factors where it does cause dementia even if you have a healthy cardiovascular lifestyle um, which we'll have Mm. our experts telling us further down the line now I just wanted to mention that in Islam there are various, you know, verses in the Holy Quran where dementia or a form of short-term memory loss or any memory loss is mentioned, um, mm. where it states in chapter 16, verse 71, um, it states as follows that, And Allah creates you, then he causes you to die. And there are some among you who reach the age of senility, which with the result that they lose all knowledge after having gained it. So once Allah does give you birth, and then he causes you to die, meaning that once you have passed away, there'll be a time once you reach an old age or elderly age, 
you will have some sort of memory loss of all the knowledge that you have gained throughout the whole year. And it carries on saying in chapter 17, verse 24, that worship none but him and show kindness to parents. If one of them attain old age with thee or both of them, never say unto them any words of expressions of disgust, nor pre-approach them, but also always address them with excellent speech. So this does hint towards that they may not be the same as they were at the ripe of age. So once they do get older, there will be forms, I wouldn't call it a discussable forms of time where you, you know, get frustrated that they're not able to remember things or they're not able to, you know, do to old age, etc. Um, do what they can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, of course, this is a very, um, you know, very nasty uh, kind of uh, condition. Uh, your loved ones forgetting you as well completely at some point. Um, uh, anyways, we'll move on and uh, uh, go to our next guest uh, to get a bit more detail on uh, the other aspects of dementia. Uh, we have next uh, Victoria uh, Leons, um, who is a clinical lead admiral nurse digital and dementia at work. Um, she is um, uh, she has worked in the dementia field for uh, over over twenty years in a variety of roles, and in twenty twenty three she celebrated working as an admiral nurse for 20 years in her current role victoria leads on the development of our of of their new uh, dementia at work support and provision this is a strategy objective for the charity uh let's welcome her now assalamu alaikum peace be upon you uh, welcome to the breakfast show victoria good morning and thank you very much for inviting us to come and talk to you and your listeners today thank you it's always nice to have a you know an a a a uh, person who is well versed in this uh, subject, um, but for the benefit benefit of our listeners, um, uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, own aims and missions of uh, Dementia UK. So Dementia UK is a charity. It's a national charity that's specialist dementia nurse charity. So we provide support to families living with dementia. And I heard a little bit of your last caller, and it's, it's, it's actually we know that dementia affects the whole family, and our admiral nurses are there to provide that family with support because when when you get a diagnosis of dementia, it can be um, life changing for, for for that family, and and we're there to give you advice, whether it's clinical advice, emotional, practical support, to enable you to live positively with dementia. And, you know, dementia, let's let's be the frank, is the leading cause of death in the UK. And we know that there's around about 900,000 people suspected to be living with dementia. So, you know, if you kind of consider those people have got families, it's a lot of people who um, dementia is impacting on. So um, that's that's what we're here for at Dementia UK to provide that support to families to help them live kindly, live well um, and to responsibly to, to, towards the, the dementia diagnosis. Okay, thank you for that. Um, my question to you is mentioned that Osman was mentioning before that you've led a, you know, um, a new dementia work support. So I'm guessing, or I, it, it probably does affect a lot of people who are professionals and who have dementia. What does Dementia UK um, give them in support wise? 
Fantastic question. So if you think about work, work's a huge, important part for many of us. And, you know, and actually, if, if you, it, lots of people who have this type of dementia, which is called young onset dementia, which is dementia under the age of 65. So for, for anybody under the age of 65, if they start to develop dementia, there's a chance they're still going to be at work, a very good chance they're still going to be at work. And if you're a daughter looking after a, an elderly parent with dementia, there's a chance you're going to be at work as well. And also people with dementia go into places of work. They go into shops, into hairdressers, supermarkets, places where people are, are working. So dementia at work is about trying to make sure that our work communities are as dementia inclusive as possible, that people who are working know how to spot the signs and symptoms of dementia and family carers who are working and caring for somebody with dementia get the right support to enable them to carry on working if, if that's what they want to do and um, so that's that's what we do as part of our dementia at work so we go and do talks and presentations to companies we we're currently working on a guide that we can put out to, to, to give advice uh, how to have that conversation with your boss if you've got that diagnosis or if you're a carer mm-hmm. um are there any specific challenges that individuals with dementia face in regards to, you know, um, hospital settings? Or any st- and if they do, what are the strategies um, that you or Dementia UK recommends them to overcoming those challenges? Yeah, so hospital, whenever a family member goes into hospital, it's it's difficult, it's stressful um, for the family involved because you've, you've got a loved one, a person you care for who's, who's in hospital. And, and if you've got somebody who's in hospital with dementia, it's even more challenging and stressful. So some tips that I would give around a hospital admission is to be prepared as much as possible. Um, you know, if you know someone's going into hospital, think about what do they need to take with them? Um, is it a special picture is it um you know a book something that's going to give them some support and some guidance is it the quran for example you know so that they've got what they need in that hospital to make that that as as good as possible for them then also speak to the nurses the doctors on the ward and talk to them about that that person's support needs what's normal for them what can they do can they not do what might they need to help them on their day-to-day do they understand even why they're in hospital and what they're there for so it's it's having those conversations on an ongoing basis with the hospital with the doctors and the nurses the other thing I would say is to ask if the hospital has got um, something called John's Campaign in place, um, in operation. And John's Campaign it, it essentially means that if a loved one with dementia is in hospital, the, the family members can ask to stay in the hospital with them and help with making sure people have meals and they, their personal care is attended in the way that they would like and all of these things. And obviously during COVID, a lot of these things were, were kind of stopped but now they're starting to to pick back up again so you know having that conversation and saying can I stay with, with my person the other thing I would say is that lots of hospitals in, in the UK have admiral nurses working within the hospital so obviously if if you're in a hospital I would also urge people to, to find out if there's an admiral nurse 
in your hospital. Um, if there isn't an admiral nurse in your hospital, on our website, we've got a really great information sheet with lots more information than I've just given your listeners now. But do, do have a look on the Dementia UK website to, to get more information because hospital stays, they're, they're, they're always stressful. So, so get as much advice as possible. Okay, thank you for that. One last question um, just mm-hmm. before you go and thank you for your time as well um, just to help support Dementia UK what can individuals do um, in their communities Oh thank you so much for asking that question because it's, it's vitally important we're a national charity so we're, we don't um, you know we're reliant on people supporting us and helping us and I think you know, anybody can get involved by obviously making a donation by talking about us um, letting people know what we do and, and the Dementia UK website we've got links where you can find out all sorts of information about what we do and you can also make donations we love it when people take part in fundraising events or become volunteer ambassadors and and actually having people living with dementia from all different communities is so important to us at dementia uk so we'd we'd love it if your listeners wanted to become volunteer ambassadors and because they were living with dementia themselves and i think the other thing i'd like to is that we, we've got a, um, a, a kind of campaign at the moment that, that we're running because we, we're very aware that people aren't necessarily getting the, the funding support that they they need. So we've got a fixed funding campaign, which is about trying to ensure that people living with dementia get, get access to, to funding um, through continuing healthcare funding. So if people um, have been affected by that or struggled with um, accessing continuing healthcare funding, please also think about putting your name onto our Fix the Funding campaign, which again, you'll find information about on our website. But that would be amazing if people wanted to, to get behind us and help us. Perfect. Thank you for your time, Victoria, and have, I hope you have a lovely week ahead. Thank you. You too. And thank you very much for inviting us to take part. Thank you. Peace be upon you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, that was uh, Victoria Lyons um, from uh, Clinical Lead and Mirror Nurse Digital and Dementia at Work. And uh, she has worked in the dementia field for over 20 years in a variety of roles and uh, a lot of projects also going on. Uh, we will move on to our uh, next guest uh, swiftly, who is Clive Bollard, sorry, Professor Clive. Uh, uh, Professor Clive is a, a psych- psychiatrist who has driven to study dementia after witnessing the poor conditions in which people with dementia were cared for. He has uh, led a co-authored well over 600 research papers and attracted grant income in excess of 150 million pounds over his research career and has won several awards as well. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Uh, peace be upon you, Professor Clive. How are you doing today? Uh, thank you. I'm very well. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me onto the show. And thank you for coming on. Uh, obviously, as an expert, uh, you always have uh, very um, detailed answers, and um, that's what we really need and that's why we want to uh, give forward to our listeners Uh, but as an expert in in levy body dementia is that how you pronounce it levy or levi Uh, it's well people call it louis although the the original person who described it was called levy so it's Mm -hmm. a controversy but most (laughs) people call it louis Okay, so in in that Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease dementia, what are some key considerations and challenges um, unique to these forms of dementia? Um, well, like like all forms of dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, they are uh, 
very savage brain diseases that do progress and do cause people impairment in their memory and brain function and everyday functions. So there's a lot of similarities. <clears throat> but the other difficulties with dementia with Lee bodies is that you also have symptoms of Parkinson's disease, so like problems with, with walking, with movement. Um, but also people who have Lee body dementia are very vulnerable to hallucinations, so they, they tend to see things that aren't there. Um, people, visitors, animals in the house that can be very, very frightening. <clears throat> and also the, the level of confusion can vary a lot from day to day, even hour to hour, and sometimes even minute to minute, which can make it a little bit difficult to, for people themselves, but also for families when, you, when they're caring for somebody with dementia with Lewy bodies. And also it's something that doctors perhaps don't diagnose quite as well as, as Alzheimer's disease, so it sometimes takes people longer to get the right diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, in the, in the beginning we mentioned in, in this research we're talking about that uh, the, the, the risk of dementia or developing dementia is decreasing. Um, is that true? And what, what's your opinion on this? How is that affecting uh, um, your research, your field? Um, well, it's a... It's a it's a comp it's a good question actually and it's it's complicated so hopefully i can explain it so the because people are living slightly healthier and doing more of the things that are helping to protect their brains like you know people are um, tending to be exercising a little bit more eating a little bit more healthily people are tending to get better education so all of those things are helping so if you look within a specific age group, like people who are now over 80 or people who are now over 90, the proportion of people who are developing dementia is slightly reduced within each age group. But because dementia is so strongly age-related and because we're all living longer, although the risk in each age group is decreasing slightly because people are getting older, the population is getting older, the number of people with dementia is still increasing a lot. Um, and it will still increase very substantially across the world in the next um, 20 to 30 years. So, you know, what we're doing is helping a little bit, but there are still more and more people with dementia. Uh, thank you. Um, Professor, leading more dementia and cognitive health trials than anyone else in Europe uh, over the last decade is an uh, impressive feat. So what challenges and opportunities have you encountered during this time? And how do these trials contribute to advancing and understanding um, of dementia? Um, look, a lot, a lot of our work has been sort of focusing on people with more severe dementia and people living in care homes and nursing homes, who have been a sort of very neglected group of individuals. And I, I, I guess that's what got me, you know, interested in doing this work and feeling that it was important in the first place. And those, you know, those have been. There's a lot of challenges with, with working with, with people with more severe dementia and in those environments. But I think hopefully what we've been able to do is show the harms of some of the sedative drugs that are, that are kind of overused that's led to sort of better practice and you know, help develop some new drugs that are, are kind of slightly better for managing some of, some of the symptoms that people get at the stage of severe dementia, um, but also uh, put a lot of effort into... Um, developing new kind of training and coaching programs to, to help improve the care that people are receiving. So I think that's been a, a big focus of our big focus of our work. 
Um, we've also more recently been focusing on the sort of other end of the spectrum, trying to help people maintain their brain health and reduce their risk of developing dementia. And we have um, a, a platform called Protect um, that uh, about 30,000 people in the UK are helping us with at the moment that's, that's looking at kind of both understanding the risk factors and the things that, that can protect the brain or lead to quicker progression but also doing studies of things that might help, for example, showing that, that actually some, some um, brain training games can actually really, really help people, that mm. exercise can, can really help people. And if anyone's interested in Protect, if they just Google Protect, they, can, um, they should be able to find it very easily on the uh, University of Exeter website. And um, we're always looking for people to help us with the research, but also if people take part in that. Um, they can use all the brain training games and things as well. So hopefully it's enjoyable. They can help with research and they, um, you know, and they can really can kind of contribute to the field. Yes. And Professor, you are also, um, you, your main research specialisms are drug discovery and dementia prevention and improving care for people with dementia in residential homes. So in, in terms of that, uh, what kind of drugs are there available for um, people with dementia? Um, well, we've had a, a type of drug called cholinesterase inhibitors. People who, um, are, who are caring for somebody with dementia are probably aware of these drugs. Well, the main one that's used is called dinepazil, and those have been available since the 1990s, as well as a drug called memantine. And they, they both help with the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and, and, and dementia with real bodies as well. Um, I think more recently we've had some sort of disease-modifying drugs that there's some uh, quite exciting that there's a couple of new treatments that have been licensed in America and uh, at least one of them is likely to be licensed in the UK and they tackle some of the proteins that go wrong in the brain in Alzheimer's disease mm. and they have a sort of relatively modest effect but it does actually begin to tackle the, the disease process itself um, so that's quite exciting although when it becomes available it will probably only be for younger people who have dementia and a relatively small number of people what we've been working on is more kind of uh, what are called repurposed drugs so these are drugs that are licensed for other indications but might also have benefits for people with dementia so we've been looking at some anti-diabetes drugs which might also help alzheimer's disease um, and a couple of other drugs that we're just starting new new trials with. One drug that we're quite excited about that's, that's used to treat brain hemorrhage in Japan, but it, it's looking very, very good in, in our initial studies and we're, we're just about to start a, a bigger study with that particular treatment. And I think the importance of this is that although the, the disease-modifying therapies that uh, will be exciting. You know, there will only be a small number of people getting them and they'll have to be given with intravenous infusions. So hopefully what we're doing can identify some sort of tablets that are a little bit easier to take and that, that can give more people access to, to better treatments. Mm -hmm. And so these, these drugs uh, need to be taken um, before dementia? Is that a precautionary drug or is this a treatment um, well, well, the particular treatments that we're looking at will probably be treatments um, for either people who are in the early stages of dementia or where they've got some symptoms but haven't got full-blown dementia. So they're not going to be full-blown prevention, but they'll hopefully be treatments, you know, before people get the full full kind of clinical symptoms. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, great. And uh, lastly, uh, with such a remarkable research portfolio, what are some uh, key areas or questions you plan to explore in the near future, uh, especially in the context of uh, dementia research? Well, I think as well as the kind of nursing homes and the treatments and the um, that we that I've kind of mentioned, one of the other kind of major advances over the last couple of years has been the improvements in diagnosis, particularly in blood tests, uh, what people call biomarkers of the disease, measuring the proteins of the disease in the blood, that I think will really help the the diagnosis. And one of the things that that we're really excited about that that we're doing at the moment through the Protect study is trying to develop a kind of a, a community memory clinic so that we're using computerized memory tests combined with with blood tests that people can do themselves at home from a finger prick and just seeing whether that's a way of being able to reach out to more people and get people diagnoses and treatment much earlier. So we're very mm-hmm. excited about that program and, and you know, that's, that, that's something that we've got a couple of big studies that hopefully will involve a lot of people across the UK over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm, great. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Clive Bollard. It was a pleasure speaking to you and very insightful as well. And a lot of work you're doing. I wish you all the best. And uh, we also you know, pray for the sex of your research. And um, uh, hopefully uh, one day we will be able to cure dementia, hopefully. No, hopefully, and thank you very much for having me on the sh- on the show. And it's fantastic that you're that you're profiling dementia. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a nice day. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. So that was uh, Professor Clive Bollard, who is a psychiatrist and who has. Um, uh, was uh, driven to study dementia after witnessing the poor condition in which people with dementia were cared for. Uh, he has done a lot of research, over 600 research papers, and um, uh, he's uh, also he was also featured in the Lancet Neurology for his achievements, and he specialises in drug discovery, um, and uh, a really talented person. Uh, we will move on to our um, next guest, um, who is another professor, Professor Cornelia van Dijn. Um, she is a uh, professor of epidemiology at the Nuffield Department of Population Health of the University of Oxford. Uh, her research within the Oxford Big Data Institute focuses on large-scale osmic studies of uh, dementia and related disorders, including vascular endocrine and gastrointestinal disease. Her current research portfolio includes cross-chromics, research integrating uh, epigenetic, transcriptomic, uh, proteomic, uh, very big words here. (laughs) So we will let her explain this uh, in in a bit more detail. Um, So let's welcome her to the show. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, Professor Cornelia. Peace be upon you and welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, as Osman was trying to read your bio there, um, which is very impressive, to be honest, um, my question to you, I think we should go straight into it due to the time as well. And thank you for your time for coming as well. Um, as the leader of the Horizon 2020, 2020 Co-Stream Consortium, could you share some of the key findings that you saw or any insights regarding the link between stroke and Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, sure. Well, as the previous speaker, Professor Bollard, I, I, I really am interested in, in how to um, to uh, overcome the problem of dementia. And one of our leads is presenting it. And uh, the cure has been difficult, although there's light on the end of the tunnel there. That there is some uh, therapy now for the disease. 
But um, I think all of us would agree that such a devastating disease where you you really are losing a patient in 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 its character, its character or her character, uh, you want to prevent that. You don't want that to happen. And the best way to do that up until now is um, trying to prevent that you have too much uh, vascular problems. And if you think about that, if 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 your brain uh, is in troubles because of the dementia, the last thing you want that there is also a problem with the cardiovascular system, but in particular with the vessels uh, that that help you feed uh, the brain. And that was the aim of the study. So uh, one of the most important problems uh, that the brain can have in the vasculature is a stroke. So everybody knows that. But there's also uh, other problems in the brain that are related to the vasculature, and that is not the big vessels, the ones that feed the brain, but also the smaller vessels that, that really are crucial in making this exchange of food uh, and uh, removing the unwanted uh, 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 molecules in the brain happen uh, are the small vessels. And that was the, the, the idea of the studies. And how does that work? And how can we translate that in preventing the disease? And we're getting more and more interested in these small vessels. And uh, there are various ways that that, that, uh, that works. And, and these small vessels probably are, are mostly involved through other endocrine problems. And you have to think then of simple things like diabetes, um, where you can't deal anymore with, uh, with uh, the amount of sugar in your blood, that is an important uh, avenue. So our aim was to understand this, and we're getting more and more understanding on this, on, on how this happens in the blood, what goes wrong, and how you can prevent that your vessels in the brain, small or large, uh, do not function very well. Okay, um, I think that leads to the next question. Um, you mentioned diabetes and what it does to the blood and how I'm guessing the gut and brain connection that exists. Um, are there any observations um, that have emerged from this re- research? Yeah, sure. Because um, I think we all realize that somehow the gut is relevant for your brain. I think we all uh, have gut feelings that you think, oh gosh, uh, it's almost that if something is wrong with the brain, you feel it in your gut and you feel uh, that there's something wrong. So I think that um, the gut-brain connection and the liver plays a very uh, important role in that is on the one hand uh, determining a lot of the, the fat in your blood and we all know cholesterol, but there's much more fat in your blood that are related, for instance, to um, the good guys uh, is what you think of is fish oils, and the bad guys is is the highly saturated fat. But uh, what the gut also does is it's uh, pushing a lot of um, inflammation factors in the blood, and these are just uh, probably sent in there with good intentions. That that inflammation without inflammation you cannot live. But if you have too much inflammation and you have no way of stopping that, it becomes very much of a problem. And that that is what we see in aging. And we definitely uh, see that developing in uh, age-related problems that are very crucial to, again, for dementia because 
hardly uh, very few people develop dementia before the age of 70. And again, like vascular problems, um, that is an important cofactor that you want to prevent. Um, the most exciting uh, developments that we see is really uh, towards also this um, pattern of inflammation we don't only see with Alzheimer's disease, but also definitely see occurring uh, in other brain-related diseases or mental health diseases like depression. Um, it's an important field and uh, it's not an easy field, uh, but we feel uh, we are in the forefront there fighting uh, the problems that that may contribute again, uh, uh, keeping us from preventing the disease to occur. Okay, thank you. And um, what is your, as you mentioned, it's not an easy field and it's very, you know, I'm guessing it's a lot of time consuming and it takes a lot of time to get that research and discoveries out. What is your advice? for emergency, emerging scientists who aspire to go into this type of research? Well, the most exciting development, as was mentioned uh, before, is the fact that we, we finally see now uh, uh, patterns of the disease also emerging in the blood. And that is related to patterns that, that you are accelerating uh, your aging. You can see that now uh, in... Uh, uh, proteins that are changing in the blood and that really point to the fact that you are developing in probably the way you don't want that. You're going faster towards an aging situation. But we also see patterns that really point to uh, dementia and that's not only relevant for diagnosis, it's also very relevant for uh, prevention because if you think back of, of for instance, cardiovascular disease, uh, what your GP will do um, if you are at risk, he will, or she will screen uh, systematically your blood for fats, um, for your sugar, for whether it's clotting too much. Um, and he or she will monitor your blood pressure. And, but it helps so much that you could see in the blood that you were on the way developing cardiovascular disease. That made it possible to prevent the disease, and we've been quite successful in that. Now, that dream we also have for dementia, that at last we can see in the blood what is happening, that you're on the way to the disease and intervene early. That is, will be one of the most exciting fields to work upon, because actually it, it will open so much opportunities if we can see in the blood what is happening instead of uh, all the cognitive testing, and, uh, which is expensive, but also uh, often interfered by uh, the patient's mood, whether you had enough sleep, whether you took the time to do the test. So by just looking at the blood, it will help anyone uh, to find a way to prevent the disease, but also to monitor it, and that is very important. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for your time and your insight. It was very um, I would say brain picking to hear those answers um, and thank you and may you have a wonderful week ahead thank you thank you so much uh, that was um, um, Professor uh, Cornelia yeah. um, who is also a professor of uh, epidemiology which is basically studying the patterns of diseases and any connection they have mm -hmm. with each other and she gave a very wonderful insight 
um, regarding the dementia and any new research which connects to you on what you're eating um, um, and what goes into your blood where they can connect to, you know, between a stroke and Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, so um, just one uh, narration of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, before we go to the news. The uh, Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, has said that no man feels a vessel worse than his stomach. And uh, I think even science has proven that majority of the diseases which are uh, which emerge, they, they start in the in the stomach somewhere. You know, many of the um, conditions, the problems people face, and uh, this this uh, advice we had so many years ago, thousands of years ago, from the Holy Prophet that uh, be mindful of what you eat. And uh, he further goes on to say that a few mouthfuls of um, of that of food would suffice to keep a person you know upright and walking that's enough food for a person but if somebody must eat more then he should fill one third with food and one third with drink and leave one third of his stomach empty for easy breathing so we see a lot of people they you know fill up their stomachs and they, they just you know lean back on the couch and they they can't don't even have the breath to walk or do any work so we need to be mindful of our eating and uh, as all the experts here are also telling us exercise and uh, taking care of your diet uh, these are the key things to prevent any disease um, uh, nowadays anyways we have uh, we will go into a bit more detail have we have another guest after this uh, short break as well so stay with us if you want to call in have a discussion uh, or give your input uh, call us on zero two zero eight six eight eight seven zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or uh, just drop us a tweet a message at voice of islam uk um and thank you for listening and stay tuned we will be back after a short break
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. In a dream, I saw an angel seated on an elevated platform in the guise of a boy. In his hand, he was holding a pure loaf of bread which was very bright. He gave it to me and said, This is for you and the dervishes who are with you. I saw this dream at a time when I was not at all known, nor had I put forth any claim, nor was there any group of dervishes with me. But now I have a large jamaat of people who have voluntarily chosen to put their faith above the world, and have thus reduced themselves to the position of dervishes. Having migrated from their homes and having separated themselves from their relatives and friends, they have taken up permanent abode near me. I have interpreted the loaf of bread as meaning that God himself will provide for me and for my followers and that we will not be rendered anxious on account of lack of provision. This has been the case over a long number of years. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the breakfast show. We are having a very interesting discussions with a number of guests on dementia. And uh, a recent study also shows that there's a decline in dementia, a very hopeful decline. Uh, and very good, very good news. We have spoken to Dr. Sadia Parveen uh, in the beginning. We have sp- uh, spoken to uh, Victoria Lyons, Professor Clive Bollard, and also Professor Cornelia Van Dyne. And uh, we still have another guest, another expert, uh, who is Dr. Catherine Bowles. Um, she is um, a group leader at the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh. Um, she completed her PhD with Professor Leslie Jones at Cardiff University before carrying out a, a postdoctoral position at the uh, Ikan School at, at uh, School of Medicine, sorry, at Mount Sinai in New York with Professor Ellison Gold. Uh, she then started her own lab at the University of Edinburgh in 2022. So let's welcome her. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, peace be upon you, and welcome to the breakfast show, Dr. Catherine. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we are very grateful to all the guests and to you as well for uh, taking out some time and joining us. Uh, and if uh, maybe you've been listening, we are speaking about dementia. Um, this is obviously your expertise. And uh, um, so we want to get some uh, some really hard uh, information out of you. Uh, just to start off, tell us a little bit um, about yourself and um, your primary interests um, which is uh, in understanding topathy. Yes, that's right. And, and thank you very much for the invitation to talk to you today. I really appreciate that. Um, so my lab is focused on understanding tauopathies. Um, so tauopathies actually refer to a whole group of different dementias or different neurodegenerative diseases. And all of them have the same thing in common, which is that there are these clumps of a particular protein called tau, which form in the brain and affect how well our brain is able to function. And so tau is a very complicated protein. It was only really discovered 
in the 1980s. And um, so we're still really trying to figure out all of its different functions. But it does seem to be very important for helping ourselves communicate with, with each other. It might affect the shape of our brain cells, how, how well they're able to connect to each other. And so in tauopathies, the protein tau is clogging up the cells and it's stopping them from working properly. And so mm-hmm. in our lab, we're really trying to understand that process um, with the goal of eventually stopping it from happening. All right. Um, as, as a researcher, uh, also focused on Alzheimer's disease, um, and Parkinson's disease and um, dementia as well, and other uh, tauopathies, how do you navigate the overlaps on and the distinctions between these conditions? Um, they, they all have very similar... Or some are even subcategories. Uh, so, how do you, uh, you know, differentiate between these uh, diseases in terms of their description? Yes. Yeah, so, we really use now as the starting point, um, and then we we follow where the science takes us. So, sometimes that takes us to Alzheimer's disease. Sometimes it takes us to frontotemporal dementia. Sometimes it takes us takes us to Parkinson's. Um, and one of the really fascinating things about tau is that it's you know this one protein but it can form all these different shapes. It can start clumping up in different brain regions and in different cell types. And so it's that variety um, of different things that tau is able to do, which can lead it to be associated with all these different um, diseases. So in the lab, our main and kind of initial focus is frontotemporal dementia, because there are mutations in the tau protein that mean if you have that mutation, it will definitely give you frontotemporal dementia. So we can use that as a model and a basis to study what happens when tau goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we see across all these different diseases are a few kind of striking commonalities. So one is all of them seem to have a problem with how well cells can produce energy. Um, and so um, things like how our mitochondria function. And so mitochondria are often referred to, you know, as the powerhouse of the cell or the batteries of the cell. Kind of across the across all diseases, that seems to be a problem. Um, and the other thing that they all seem to have in common is how well our brain cells are able to communicate with each other. And mm. so the difference between these diseases really seems to be which cells are affected first, which brain region is affected first. Um, and what's really intriguing to us is the how and the why that is happening. That's still what we're missing mm-hmm. um, and what we're trying to figure out. So there's no answer to how and why yet? No, that's what we're working on. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. And, um, you know, looking ahead, what are some of the long-term aspirations for your lab's research and how do you envision your contributions shaping this field um, um, in, in dementia and um, um Uh, Parkinson's? Yeah, so, I mean, as I as I mentioned, you know, the how and the why is what is really missing at the moment. So uh, my lab is really trying to understand the why. We want to understand exactly what goes wrong in cells that have tau that isn't working properly. And so we want to find the very, very earliest changes to our brain cells that happen before cells get clogged up with tau and before they die. So you know, before people would actually have symptoms of mm-hmm. dementia. And so we think that if we can understand that why, we can find a way to disrupt it and we can stop the progression of the disease or we can stop people from getting the disease in the first mm-hmm. place. So the ultimate goal of what we do is to find new ways 
we can disrupt the process for um, these dementias and for tower disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really hopeful that, you know, by targeting tau that does have all of these different effects, it does affect so many different people and so many different dementias, um, that our work can have a big impact in the future. Mm-hmm. And... Um Lastly, just tell us a little bit about the, about the research process. Um, obviously, you, you can't know uh, that some uh, somebody is going to have a uh, so he's going to have a dementia later on in life. Mm-hmm. So, how do you pick up your your you know um, uh, the people you do experiment on, or how how do you experiment? Uh, just tell us a bit about the process. Yes, of course. So um, my lab largely uses a tool called induced pluripotent stem cells. And so what that means is that we take either blood samples or skin samples from people that have a dementia. Um, A lot of the time that will be people who have a very rare mutation that will definitely cause the dementia. So we will know that anyone who's born with that mutation will definitely get the disease in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And then we can change those blood or skin cells back into a cell that has the potential to be any kind of cell in the body. And so we're able to then make different types of brain cells from those the cells of those people. So we can actually look inside how the brain is working in people with dementia without having to actually access their real brain. And so that lets us look exactly how the cells are functioning in people that have dementia um, at the very kind of molecular level and at how these proteins are working um, to try and understand what's different um, Mm. compared to people who don't have these very rare mutations or don't get dementia. Great, that's really great. I hope you do find these uh, the the answer to these to why and how, and uh, hopefully we will be another um, you know disease condition and humanity will win. Yes, I hope so too. <laughs> great, thank you very much once again, uh, Dr. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Uh, have a nice Goodbye. day. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. So that was uh, Dr. Catherine. Bowles, who is a group leader at the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh and um, who has um, also her uh, her own uh, research uh, centre. Um, this is uh, this was our last guest for this for this topic. Um, we will still uh, we will have a, we have a, a, a short clip about um, this question, which is sometimes uh, posed about these diseases. And that is the religious uh, aspect of it. That, um, for example, dementia, you you can't uh, prevent this at the for now at least. You can't. Uh, there's no treatment for it. So this is a kind of suffering that uh, that can't be avi- uh, alleviated at the moment. So answering this question that if God exists, why is there suffering in the world? Um, uh, a, a respected member of the MDU community from the United States has given an answer to this question a very short one we'll just listen into that and this is where we conclude our topic so I remember uh, the fourth Khalifa Allah bless him always he spoke about this in his book called Revelation Rationality and he said those people who complain of the suffering of life you ask them you give them a choice would you want to be that worm beneath your feet who in a sense is probably quite happy living in its, 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 its realm of dirt and whatever it's eating and has lack of sensory perception of a lot of pain as we have. But the poor worm is of a lower 
consciousness and doesn't feel as much pain as we do. It's not suffering because you ripped the, that poor worm out of its family system in the ground and took it to the ocean to, to, to be used for fish. And so what anyone in this world who's asking God, why suffering, would want to go back to a level where we didn't suffer so much and think that's a better world for us. Think that that's a better plan. God keep us all at that level of a lower consciousness where we don't have the struggles we have now in the human family. And I'm sure there's very few, even among atheists who would say, yeah, that's a better life. I, I think that's the way to go. And so we understand from this concept that the trial of life and death is what brought us from that lower organism called the amoeba to what is now the human being and continues to propel us forward on the path of progress and evolution and perfection of our beings. And this is a mercy, a blessing that comes from that being who understood his creation better than anyone else. In this sense, again, a verse of Quran speaks about, it's universal. So there's no injustice in this system in which we all live. You could say that if it was like a system where only the haves are getting it and the haves not, then you would say, God, you're unjust. We are suffering in this part of the world in America, but the people in the other part of the world are not suffering. So God, your system isn't balanced. But as we can see across the board, as I said, not even those who disbelieve in God. Imagine the case of those who believe in God. God says even them, you're going to go through this trial of life and death. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the breakfast show. Um, we had just finished our first topic, first segment, which was uh, the hopeful decline of dementia. Now, moving on to our next segment, which is jam packed with guests. Um, the next segment is called The Resilience and Leadership how to bounce back and lean forward. This, just, the gist of the story is from the psychologytoday.com. Um, so in the first 21st century, resilience and leadership have assumed a pivotal role in navigating our life's journey. Resilience and the art of bouncing back from setbacks provides the foundation for personal and professional advancement. Simultaneously, leadership as a guiding force instills this resilience within individuals and teams Steering them through the waters of change in our ever-shifting and unpredictable world, the interplay between resilience and leadership helps us to thrive and continue persevering. In this segment, um, we're of course going to explore practical ways on how we can adopt this resilience and how we can make it a part of our life uh, and help in terms of leadership. And if those listener is in a role of leadership this segment might be useful to you yes and if you have uh, any experience or any uh, insight you want to share maybe you want to give some tips or maybe you want to take some tips call us on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or tweet us um, at voice of islam uk uh, Nabil if you talk about leaders 
um, I think one of the greatest leaders in the history of mankind. Um, you hear very great names. You know, you hear Alexander the Great. You hear about Caesar. Um, you hear about um, Genghis Khan. Um, but you know, if you talk about the perfect leader who had leadership, who had kindness, who had power, knowledge, everything. It must be the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who has proven to the world, yes, whether course. the world accepts or not, that in every aspect of life, he has excelled every human being. Yeah, of course. And um, there is countless examples of this in, in, in his lifetime. Definitely. Um, I think in terms of leadership, it's not just a leadership of, I would say, an army or a general. It could be a leadership at home, a role as a husband and a son who takes priorities over others. Like you were mentioning, there are various roles that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had taken on during his lifetime. Nevertheless, people should remember he was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. He never. He didn't have a form of education, whereas where he could take those roles. I think the most biggest role, in my perspective, for a person who had no education background or no, you know, I would say, experience, would be the, in the role of being a general or a leader during wars. Um, there's, there's a narration where the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who was a commander-in-chief of the Muslim army, set out with 1,500 companions and reached the site of Badr. Um, as there was, there was a war going at that time and it was promised by both parties to go and reach that site. Whereas the opposition um, came out with 2,000 Meccans to defend um, and they, they stayed at some distance. And... When the opposition decided to retreat, um, the the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, just for just to understand the situation um, during that year, the fam- the f- famine as uh, the resources were very severe during that time, and people were very going through much of a difficulty. And he advised his companions that we shouldn't attack at this time and wait and come back with a greater preparation and when the influence will be a, a, a full effect. Um, so when the Muslims became aware that the opposition and his troops had retreated to Mecca, the Muslims stayed in Badr for eight days and participated in trade with the, the people around them. So after the eight days had passed, the Meccans didn't come. So the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, commanded the Muslim armies to return to Medina. Um, so the the famine that was continuing had struck Mecca at the time for quite a while. So both the poor and the rich were not saved um, due to the circumstances and situation. Yeah. And so, the Holy Prophet ﷺ, just to end this incident, um, once he received knowledge about the famine and its effect in Mecca, as an act of compassion, he had sent money and some sort of resources to the people who were less fortunate in Mecca. Knowing this during wars, right, as a person, like yeah. I said, who was an illiterate, he still showed an act of compassion towards the end as a leader. Yes, exactly. I mean, the, <clears throat> there has been many great leaders, but again, as a leader, people always think you need to be, you know, harsh, you need to be strict, you need to give that punishment to prevent further, um, you know, um, disobedience. However, we see the example of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that leadership from a different perspective where it wasn't a, a dictatorship, it wasn't a, you know, like a general, a harsh general. It was it was love and kindness and he, he did lead from the front. Um, but there is so many other aspects to leadership as well. 
Um, we will um, go to our first guest here, who is Dr. Derek Mowbray. And uh, Dr. Derek is an organization health uh, psychologist who specializes in the prevention of stress in the workplace. Um, I'm pretty sure every leader needs to or, or does deal with stress at some point. So uh, let's uh, welcome our guest and let's get the expert intake on uh, this topic as well. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, uh, Dr. Derek. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are speaking about leadership and um, resilience, um, something you have um, uh, you specialize in as well. Um, so, you know, in, in, in terms of stress, in, in terms of uh, the difficulties a leader faces uh, or the, uh, the management sometimes faces, uh, give us some advice uh, on what kind of um, challenges you have seen people face and uh, how they have dealt with it. Well, <clears throat> the workplace is a controlled environment, uh, controlled by people we call leaders and managers. And so it is really as a consequence of their behavior and actions that people react to different types of events within organizations. So uh, all sorts of things happen, of course, uh, from uh, feeling <clears throat> Uh, as though you've got too much work to do and you can't complete it. There may be things going on at home which are causing you to uh, to feel distressed to a certain extent. I mean, the issue is uh, stress diverts concentration and performance is all about the ability to concentrate, to concentrate for sufficiently long in order to complete whatever it is you're doing. And it's relatively straightforward to... Uh, as it were, get rid of physical interruptions, people sending emails and knocking on your door and asking you to do things. That can be negative just to do that. Mm-hmm. It's the psychological difficult. That is, people not liking each other or people misbehaving towards each other or telling them to do things which actually they don't want to do. It's against their values for so on. In organizations. And what one has to do and what people need to do is to against them. And Sorry, so uh, see- Dr. Derek, we, we are uh, losing you a little bit. You are cutting off a lot. Um, okay. If uh, you can just. Well, uh, well what, we're, what people need to, to do in the workplace is be resilient against these adverse events. And in order to do that, they have to turn the adversity from being a threat to them. Uh, hmm. into being a challenge and that's what we see in the workplace and yes. uh, it's far better to get people to feel as though the adversity is something they can rise up to and overcome rather than perceiving it as a threat and therefore having to cope with it hmm. you've been promoting the concept of psychological responsibility uh, tell us a bit about that psychological responsibility is the responsibility we all have uh, in order to ensure that we look after our own psychological well-being and also to be able to support and help everybody else in the workplace. And for this to, to work, the workplace has to be a psychologically safe working environment. In other words, people should be able to speak out about how they feel and receive the support that they need in any circumstance. So it's creating that sort of psychological environment where people can feel 
free enough to be able to express themselves and contribute to the work that they're doing as well as supporting and engaging with others. Psychological responsibility is also about this uh, this notion that we help other people develop their psychological well-being by mm-hmm. behaving positively and compassionately towards them. So that's what it, it is in essence. And I spend my time introducing that into organizations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as, as a leader or uh, what as an effective leader, what are kind of the skills or skill set you, you expect uh, one to have? What makes you an effective leader? Um, despite, uh, you know, we, we everyone had some kind of experience in leadership in small teams and bigger teams. But what makes a great leader? Well, I mean, the, the, the task of a leader is to guarantee that the workforce is in perfect working order, knows where it's going and knows how to get there. So the perfect working order aspect of leadership is often forgotten. Uh, great leaders are all about trumpeting where people are going and giving people strong motivation to follow. And so uh, great leaders have the behavior, which is really based on attentiveness, that they are attentive not only to other people, but they're attentive to their, their role in terms of the future of whatever it is that they're leading, whether that's an organization or whether it's a family at home or whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be. Um, but their purpose is to ensure that everybody within that group are in perfect working order. In other words, they're free from distress or stress or anxiety, that they are actually really fully engaged in what it is that they are expected to do and expected to follow. Mm-hmm. So a, a really great leader has the charisma to actually be really concerned with the followers and to nurture them, support them, and be crystal clear about where they're going, what the purpose is, what the direction is, and how to get there. So people feel confident and really invest themselves in the way in which the leader is directing them. So mm-hmm. it's very much about creating an engagement between followers and leaders, and that's that's what we look for when we look for great leaders and leadership. Yes, definitely. And uh, what, what's the connection between um, well-being and performance um, and uh, how how can that affect the team? Uh, well, performance is all about the ability to concentrate. Uh, if you, you can have all the skills, knowledge and experience in the world, but if you can't concentrate, then they are a waste of time. So it's mm. about creating an environment where you can concentrate. So having uh, psychological interference, whether you're anxious or thinking about things at home or whatever it is that is causing you to Uh, have your mind hijacked, then uh, we need to try and reduce all of that in order to uh, encourage people to be actively engaged and focused on what they're doing. And the best way of doing that is to create a psychologically healthy and uh, safe working environment where people really get a buzz from the activities Mm -hmm. they're engaged in as well as the people that they're working with. And so psychological well-being is fundamental Uh, to performance because psychological well-being is about how you feel it's not about how you are Uh, you can you can be unwell and all sorts of things but feel great and so the idea is to create an environment where people feel a real buzz want to get out of bed run to work because the workplace is a fantastic place to work 
Mm. And if you get that feel amongst people who are in the workplace, then they will focus. They will want to preserve that environment. They want to uh, sustain it. They want to do anything to keep that sort of uh, sensation, that buzz going, because it's so rare and it's so wonderful to feel that way. And that's Mm. the connection between well-being and performance. Yes, amazing. Thank you, Professor. Uh, sorry, thank you, Dr. Derek. Uh, very, very important points about uh, resilience and, uh, you know, making that feel, make, enjoying your work as well. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning and I hope you have a, a wonderful day ahead. Um, thank you for your time. Not at all. Thank you very much. Thank Bye you. Bye bye. So that was uh, Professor Derek um, uh, Mowbray. Uh, who is an organization health psychologist and who specializes in prevention of stress in the workplace. And the key point he mentioned here that, uh, you know, having that good feeling, you need to feel good about your work. Um, then, obviously, if, if you can't, then you can focus best. Uh, we'll move on to our next guest, who is Dr. Audrey Tang, who is a uh, catered uh, psychologist an award-winning business author with a focus on practical tools for well-being. She is a mental health broadcaster with extensive media experience as well, a keynote speaker in the area of leadership and qualified teacher. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, uh, Dr. Audrey Tang. Hello, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Moving on just quickly, um, thank you for coming on um, due to the time we have. Um, My question to you is, and of course we know that knowledge and experience play a very important role in leadership and what advice would you give to young leaders? There's a lot of different things that people will say but I would say be your authentic self. We often think that we need to be a certain type of person to be a leader and you get a lot of people feeling quite upset if they're quite diligent rather than charismatic or that seems to be their trait if they work really hard but other people seem to be out there and quite posture and showing off and and sometimes we are drawn to the charismatic leader but at the same time you will always find a follower that suits you and if you are putting on something that's inauthentic you are not going to be able to make that last so one of the most important things is be yourself because if you think about leadership in the way that you might think about a fitness class there'll be lots of different teachers out there and people will come to the teacher that suits them the most leadership it's very, very similar to so be your authentic self. Okay, perfect. Um, in your podcast, The Wellbeing Lounge, you spoke about various uh, emotional and well-being impacts that people have on their day-to-day life. Um, how have you seen those changes in work practices since the pandemic? What's happening at the moment is I don't believe all organisations are understanding that people's needs have changed during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Some people felt that they wanted to spend more time with family. Some people felt actually they wanted to get back into the workplace. And so you've almost got this disconnect with some workplaces saying, oh, well, we have to have everyone back or we have to go completely remote. And I don't think people are speaking to each other enough. The problem, though, with asking people what do you want is if we ourselves haven't thought about the best way of working for us, if we don't necessarily give the best answer for us. We give what we what we think that other people want to hear. So it's about us being honest about what suits us the best and being open and communicating that. But it's also about organisations asking people what sort of situation environment suits you as well and 
thinking about the individuals too. Another thing that is important that hasn't been just because of the pandemic, and your previous guest spoke about this as well, is, is the idea about well-being at work. One of the misunderstandings at the moment is that when you have people who are feeling uh, burnt out, stressed and so on, is that we're going to give you individual and personal interventions such as we'll have more resilience lessons, we'll have um, well-being at lunchtime, we'll do yoga, we'll do uh, have an ice cream truck, we'll have those sorts of things. However, if you think about physical health and safety, if somebody goes to work and they fall down a hole, you don't give people lessons in how to walk around a hole, you fix the hole. So if people are feeling burnt out, why are we giving people lessons on being more resilient when actually it could well be the system that needs to be changed? Sometimes we need to take a more practical approach and say, well, what is causing the stress in the place? And maybe look at fixing that rather than saying it's an individual's problem. Yeah, following up to that, um like like Usman was mentioning in your introduction that you are a mental health broadcaster. Um, what challenges have you seen in young leadership, so even any any type of leadership, um, and how have you helped them overcome it? Sometimes what people think leadership is all about is the next progression in their career. But the skills of the leader, the skills of the manager, are actually very different to the skills of the team player. Yeah. And if you feel that leadership is your only and next step up but that's not actually what you want to do you can face a bit of a problem so just to give an example in my own experience when i I train i have people who say well well i was training in the nhs and one nurse said um i i moved into management but i actually beg my staff to give me a a shift with patients (laughs) because i really miss that and leadership, management, there's a, it's a lot about vision, creativity, paperwork, <laughs> um, delegation, very different types of skills. So just be aware, that's the first thing, that leadership may not be the right progression for you, even yeah. though it sounds exciting. So that's, that's probably the first thing. Um, the second thing that you, you need to think about is that when you are in the leadership position, you can't necessarily always run in and go and do the job itself. A very experienced fire chief said this to me when he was giving us fire training because we were delivering fire training. Um, he said in his own experience, he moved into leadership and then was at at an incident where he felt so compelled to go and jump in because that was his job that was what he knew himself to be able to do and then there was no one coordinating the event luckily no one got hurt but the point is when you're in the leadership position you have to be able to get other people to do the work you can't be running around doing the work itself otherwise no one is coordinating the whole situation so you need to recognize that the skills are very very different and that's probably where i start to support people when it comes to leadership Perfect. Thank you for your time, Dr. Audrey. Perfect way to finish off your interview. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Have a nice uh, week ahead. You too. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Audrey Tang. Um, Dr. Audrey Tang is a career psychologist and award-winning business author with a focus on practical tools for well-being and also a mental health broadcaster, a keynote speaker, experienced teacher, leadership um, provider, ma- amazing, uh, very talented uh, woman, um, we have um, uh, one. Uh, sorry, two more guests. Uh, the next one is Mr. Russell Harvey, um, who is a resilience coach and facilitator and public speaker. Assalamualaikum, uh, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Breakfast Show. Hello there. Thank you very much for having me. Two great guests that you've had on. Just been listening in. 
Great. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, we we did have a lot of guests today, and uh, we are very grateful to uh, every guest to you as well for joining us and giving us no time out of your busy schedule. Um, to start off, you you work on a strength based approach. Uh, could you run us through what this means and what is what it builds on? Absolutely. Yes. So when I work with a lot of clients um, as the resilience coach, uh, when often you ask people actually what are their strengths, it's not something that readily comes to mind. So uh, I use a psychometric called StrengthScope. So clever people than I have identified that there are 24 strengths. So these are the things that naturally energize you. Mm-hmm. And the secret of leadership, I, you know, you've been talking, asking your previous guests about what should leaders do. So leaders listening in now and, you know, uh, family members, parents, guardians, it's really discovering actually for each individual what naturally energizes them, what they naturally enjoy doing and harnessing those in as many different ways as possible. Uh, so, for example, uh, my top three strengths. So there are 24 strengths and you can't be naturally energized by all 24. So you do a mm. self-assessment and you tell yourself what your significant seven strengths are. Are My top three, personally, are collaboration, working with others, developing people, i.e. coaching, mm-hmm. and strategic-mindedness, big picture. So that's how I naturally approach most things. And something that I am energized by the least is detail orientation. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me to do detail, it's like somebody's burst my bubble. I wither inside, I sort of collapse and go, oh no, don't make me do it. However, uh, I can do detail uh, and I can also harness my strength. So if I collaborate, tap into my uh, strength collaborator, um, then I actually, if I do detail with others, then that helps me. So a strengths-based approach Mm -hmm. is really supporting people to understand actually what they're naturally energized by, what they're looking forward to doing each day, each week that's in their work diary. Um, So you can look back on the things that you didn't enjoy doing uh, in the previous week and the things that you did enjoy and look forward to the week ahead and go, actually, you know, Tuesday afternoon. Oh, yes, I'm working on such and such project. That's brilliant. Ah, Wednesday morning, I've got these Mm -hmm. activities to do. And that makes me feel drained inside. So harnessing your strengths is really important. And it builds natural resilience and natural confidence when you play to your strengths. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Mr. Harvey, you had uh, you know over twenty years um, experience in learning and mm-hmm. leadership and organizational development. Um, have you had any experience with children um, and leadership in in you know younger people? How that uh, shapes them in in the future? Yeah, so um, I have done things, various things with the Speakers Trust, which is teaching uh, you know year tens to do a ninety second two minute speech without a booklet Mm -hmm. uh, in front of their peers. So we have them for a day and and support them to do that. I used to be the chair of governors of a a primary school. Um, And one of the, there's lots of research that's been around over the different years to say a particular generation is more resilient than another. And according to the latest, latest research, um, it's not necessarily true that any generation has been more resilient than another. It's a case of each generation has its own challenges that it needs to face into and it appears to be that each generation is just equally resilient that might this is just my opinion Mm -hmm. that might change because in the last maybe five ten years actually within this sort of educational curriculum from uh, primary school upwards uh, uh, schools are actually doing a lot more about cultivating a growth mindset 
So at the heart of um, resilience is one's attitude. So a growth mindset is having the underlying attitude uh, that when you're faced with a new task, you have the attitude of, I don't know how to do that yet. So it's cultivating that idea of like, not just saying, I don't know how to do that Mm -hmm. and stopping. It's cultivating the attitude of like, okay, this is new. I don't know how to do that yet. Yeah. And then actually what they're willing to do to face into it. So it might be another couple of decades before we find out mm-hmm. if um, the uh, children that are coming through now may be more resilient. And the final thing around that is, unfortunately, most people don't know how resilient they are until they have to face into a really difficult, um, unpleasant challenge. And my view is, don't wait for that unpleasant challenge to come mm-hmm. along. My view is... Actually, you can be building your resilience all day, every day. Um, so let's do that instead. Let's not wait for the unpleasant thing to happen. Let's actually be working on our resilience right now. In your, in your opinion, um, there's obviously many factors to being a great leader. And you need to have multiple um, you know, um, skillful characteristics. But if you have to pick one, what is it? Is it confidence? Is it uh, knowledge? Is it uh, being resilient? What is the, I would say, you know, the key characteristic every leader needs to have or should have first? So I appreciate that I'm biased. That, that, those choices that you gave me, I, w- I would see that you do need to be a resilient role model. Mm-hmm. So I talk about <laughs> something called being self-full, which is that you look after yourself first, i.e. build your resilience, in mm-hmm. order that you can support others. So there has to be this underlying attitude that predominantly you are in service of others. I absolutely concur with the other guests. So, you know, um, Dr. Audrey Tang, I think it was. You know, be authentic. You you can't get away from that. So understand what your strengths are, you personally. Play to your strengths. Uh, Get a team around you that will compensate and complement your strengths. And I always define resilience as bringing forward with learning not a fan of this idea of bouncing back because there's a risk that we'll face into a challenge and then go right i'll now go back mm-hmm. you can never go back you can only move forward so cultivating this uh, inner desire to learn and be open and be curious about yourself and others enables you to spring forward learning and harness other people's strengths is what i would say Amazing. Uh, I think I agree with you as well. Thank you, Mr. Russell Harvey. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show and thank you for your time once again. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye. So that was Mr. Harvey, uh, Mr. Russell Harvey, uh, who is, um, as uh, he uh, mentioned himself, very biasedly. Uh, he was a, re- a resilience coach, a facilitator and public speaker. And uh, his purpose is to positively affect 100,000 people by the year of 2025. And he is, um, I think, at 14,000 people. So all the best uh, for that as well. We will move on to our uh, next guest and the last guest for the show, who is Dr. Emma Donaldson Fielder. Uh, Dr. Emma is a coaching psychologist and occupational uh, psychologist who aims to support the development of kinder, wiser workplaces. And her current work portfolio includes coaching and supporting other coaches by offering coaching supervision and uh, providing coach development programs based on uh, relational mindfulness assalamu alaikum peace be upon you welcome to the breakfast show dr emma oh thank you so much for inviting me it's a real pleasure to be here and thank you for uh, taking some time out from you know busy schedule and uh, joining us uh, we are speaking about leadership and uh, coaching 
uh, etc. So uh, your research and um, consultancy has explored how to improve employee health and well-being and the role of leadership and people management. What do you see as a solution for building resilience, uh, building, you know, that self-confidence and and, and uh, facing challenges head on? Mm. Well, sort of to build on what a number of your other speakers have already said, there's a sort of general sense of what's important around the workplace. And then let me and then I'll come on to talk about leadership and the, and the mm-hmm. role. So sure. the leaders play a really important role. But generally, um, people are at their most resilient when they have um, three things, ABC, autonomy, so a sense of, of a control over what's happening, um, belonging, so feeling part of something bigger and um, good relationships and so on. And then competence, which you might also call contribution. So people have a sense that they are um, doing something that they're good at, you know, they're building on their strengths, but they're also contributing to something meaningful. So if you think of that as the kind of broad context, then um, you can begin to think how leaders and those who are managing people really help um, those that work for them to experience those three things. Um, And yes, my research with my colleagues um, came up with a set of behaviours that are important for this, this leadership people management role. So there's something about um, being open, fair, consistent, that authenticity that one of the other speakers talked about, um, but also that capacity to um, treat people with respect uh, and build those um, relationships. So the second thing is really about how do you, as a leader, build and and sustain good relationships with everybody uh, who works for you and and the others in in the workplace handling conflict when it does arise, but also providing clarity and and guidance around the actual job and supporting people to develop. So there's this broad set of behaviours. But I also think, and some of the other speakers touched on this as well, there's an underlying attitude and set of values that's really important here. Uh, And you will have heard from my introduction that I I believe kindness is one of the really important things in the workplace. Really, um, leaders who care... Um, but also leaders who have that degree of wisdom that they're open to different perspectives and that they're willing to understand, understand, uh, manage their own emotions and also to really listen, give people uh, good attention and really listen to what they've got to say, being fully present to them. So there's something here not just about what people, what leaders are doing, but also about how they're being, the attitude they're bringing to this. And there's one final thing. Also, it's really important for leaders to take care of themselves. It's a tough role um, managing other people um, and leading other people. Mm. So they need to have you know have their own access to resilience do the things that helps them take care of themselves and then they become role models uh, and help uh, those that work for them to to actually be resilient as well as being better able to lead perfect my follow-up question to you is that i think my uh to rephrase it a bit are we born leaders or is it that the environment shapes us to be leaders or prepares us to whether we can lead or not yeah, I, that's such a uh, yeah, that's such a question. <laughs> I think um, I think it's a combination. You know, I think, and obviously, I've done quite a bit of leadership development in my time and and supporting line managers. So uh, I think everybody can improve their skills around leadership and management. And at the same time, I think some people are naturally better at, at it than others. So you know, it's that uh, you know, there's a bit of natural flair let's say um 
but that needs to be built. And I think the problem often in the workplace is that um, a lot of people get promoted because they're good at the day job. You know, they're good at being a lawyer or a doctor or making widgets or selling things. And then they get promoted into a leadership or management role and they're not given the support. So I think there's something really important um, for employers and for senior leaders to make sure that they're supporting people who are new in that leadership role, new into managing people, because it's a whole different set of skills. And I think they, they can be developed and they, 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 you know, they, they, but they need that support to, 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 to actually be given the space to develop them. Okay, linking to the answer, you were mentioning that how, you know, people move on to management and they don't have that sort of skill set where mm-hmm. they as, can be as leaders. What advice would you give to them, um, you know, who are stuck at that kind of dead-end dead, dead job? Mm. And want to, of course, enhance their skill set or would you recommend them to go back to their old role? Or mm. Mm. So I think there's there's a lot of things that you can do um and i think sort of thinking about what are the key qualities and go back in, going back to what i said i think listening is a key quality so really developing that and um, even if you feel that your current role isn't giving you the scope that you'd like if you can really listen and get curious about other people and um, there's so much to learn um, and being open to those um, new ideas um, and also being open to feedback. So I think there's something important if whatever role you're in um, is really asking other people how they see you and learning about your own strengths, learning about things that you're maybe not doing so well and being willing to listen, not seeing you know negative feedback as blame, but just being really open to listening to what, what can I learn from this? How could I grow? Um, and then there's something about seeking support. So if you feel that you are not getting the opportunity to develop, maybe seeking out somebody who could mentor you, who could support you, looking at whether your employer could provide some support to help you develop. And there are quite a lot of free resources. So um, going back to the research that my colleagues and I did, that's been developed into a set of online tools. Um, so if you go to the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development website, and put in support for people managers, you can find some free online um, support materials. Um, So there's quite a bit out there. And I think there's something about finding um, something within the job that really does motivate you. um, Because if you're feeling a bit stuck and dead endy, um, if you can find something that energizes you um, and and start really doing your best, the likelihood is you're going to be spotted and that somebody is going to say right okay it's time to move you to to a more exciting job or to um give you the extra responsibilities or whatever it might be so there's something about kind of having that energy yourself mm. okay perfect thank you for your time that's a great pleasure lovely to talk to you and peace be upon you and have a lovely weekend thank you Thank you, Dr. Emma. Um, that was Dr. Emma, who is a coaching psychologist and occupational psychologist. Um, also very, very um, insightful. Thank you uh, for your time once again. Um, this is bringing us to the end of our show. Um, obviously, we asked, as we mentioned in the beginning of the show, leadership. Um, the perfect example we have was the Holy Prophet Muhammad. And I know a lot of people don't agree with this, but if you look at the facts, if you look how he lived his life, um, we have to we have to agree that he was the perfect leader. Um, also, 
the leadership of the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed. Um, he has uh, said at one point that which leader or dictator is there who keeps a personal connection with each of his citizens. On the other hand, the Khalifa of the age maintains a personal connection with Ahmadi Muslims from amongst every race and form and from all parts of the world. It is Khilafat, it is this Caliphate alone that cares for and feels the pain of every Ahmadi Muslim and prays for them. And His Holiness also mentioned that before he goes to sleep, he goes through every nation, every country where there are Ahmadi Muslims and prays for them. This connection, this is which I have not seen in any leadership in this in this world, uh, whether it's prime ministers, generals of the army. This connection of, you know, uh, as Dr. Emma was mentioning, the most important quality is kindness as well for a leader. That this kindness you haven't seen um, or you don't you don't experience it in in the leadership today in the worldly leadership this is this spiritual aspect is only seen in some religious um leaders uh, but in islam you see this in every leader in every good islamic leader he has this aspect of kindness of prayer and uh, being being um you know attached to to their um subjects um and there is a countless example of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him um being a leader also means um, it doesn't mean you forget all your humility because you're a leader. His wife, um, Hazrat Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, she relates that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he would at home he would attend to the needs of his family, and he would do all his his own chores. He would, uh, if if uh, um, his clothes ripped, uh, he would uh, fix his own clothes. He would milk the goats. He would attend to his personal chores. But when it was time for prayer, when it was time for him to go out and um, obviously lead a whole nation outside, then he would uh, leave and attend to the nation. He was a human being like all others. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, cared for his. Um, a foster relatives and he also adopted a, a, a cousin of his who he took care of um, but uh, anyways there is there is so much but we don't have the time to mention all of this but uh, at the end we do have a short clip um, and we will play that and with this we will end our segment um, thank you for uh, all the guests uh, um, for joining us and uh, for um, giving your intake uh, thank you very much task in my view in a very pressed time you are swimming against the tide how do you get the strength how do you preach the strength do you have any fear and how do you give strength to your followers from the other Muslims who do not accept you sir thank you well swimming against time is the most important part of your question but those who swim against the tides they always change the tides if they're right. So gradually the swimming becomes less arduous and uh, easier as you proceed because the times change along with you. All the prophets of God who founded a religion, all the law-bearing, not only law-bearing, but founders of religions, started swimming against the time single-handed, alone by themselves. And what happened? The tides were changed. And it is that history from which we draw our strength. You said strength, where you get the strength? Strength can only be drawn from faith. Faith born on the hard facts of history, 
or hard facts of nature. The rest of the faiths are just faiths and no more. They can't even change the li lives of those who hold those faiths. And this is the dilemma of the present world. So this is how you can recognize Ahmadiyyat as standing out differently from the community of other religions. Otherwise, just we are one of so many. Why should you be interested in us, not in others? And this is the line of demarcation which you have suggested to me. That we are strong in faith. So much so strong that we can adhere to faith, the faith, so faithfully, despite the fact that we have to offer sacrifices, our lives, our properties, our honor, continuously over a large number of years, consistently we have been doing it. So that is an indication that we do have faith. And the faith, faith must be founded on something. It has to be truth. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture.